Welcome to episode 92 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started with my first topic. And so news is breaking that Nokia has been blocked from providing 5G infrastructure to Romania. So I know you and I have talked about conspiracy theories on our podcast, Anshul, in the past. But this is odd because last year... Romania officially banned Huawei and all Chinese infrastructure providers, but Nokia is quite surprising and there's really been no explanation given. So I want to start with you. I've got a theory, but do you have any theories here? Well, I did hear um, about this and my understanding is that it has something to do with with like legal contracts i'm not really entirely sure um because the way it was explained i'm I'm, i read it on light reading i don't know if that's where you saw it yeah i did Um, uh and like doesn't seem like nokia really understands fully what what went wrong Mm -hmm. but it sounds like there's some kind of um regulatory reasoning for it and um it could just be that like you know nokia didn't do something that romania expects them to Mm -hmm. um but it's really hard when it comes to a lot of eastern european governments because either they're like super corrupt and you have to you know pay somebody to 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 win a deal or or there's just like layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy. And if you make one false move, like you're, you're, you're in uh, a big lot of trouble, you end up paying fine. So yeah. um, <clears throat> there's no middle ground, unfortunately. And I have a feeling this will probably be resolved, mm-hmm. but it makes for a great headline. It does. And, you know, Erickson's been in the news, right, with the, the issues that have resulted from the audit, I believe it was with Iran, right? And there's not, so if it was Ericsson that was being blocked, then that might be understandable. I tend to agree with you. It's probably some sort of technicality, but also, and I also agree with you as well, you know, Eastern Europe is a whole different, you know, sort of ball game and, you know, and not to point fingers, but, you know, it makes you wonder, and I think it's been very well documented that that Huawei was actually maybe not paying direct bribes to some of these countries for their you know infrastructure deployment, but th- there were some you know some entitlements that I think that Huawei was providing. So maybe there's a lack of that with Nokia, and they're not wanting to quote unquote play ball. But it'll be interesting to see. But uh, well, yeah. they did have some recent documents come out about their involvement in in the. Russian market and uh-huh. uh, a bunch of those documents released. So I, I don't think that's connected. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, when you're dealing with um, different types of uh, countries, you know, laws are wildly different from one country to another. Yeah. And that's one of the big challenges with Europe. And I think one of the reasons why 5G has been slower to deploy there because each individual country manages spectrum auctions, regulations. I mean, the European Commission is designed to help sort of um, aggregate that and, and smooth that process out. But 
clearly that's one of the biggest challenges. And so you make a very good point. You know, each country has very specific differences in the way they approach these sorts of things. But we'll keep our eyes and ears open and report back if uh, if news materializes. But let's go to your first topic this week. And you want to talk about OnePlus and they're launching a new phone in the U.S., right? Yeah. So if you're watching the video version of the podcast, uh, you know, depends kind of listener, watcher, you, viewer you are. I'm, I'm actually holding a uh, OnePlus 10 Pro in my hands right now. Um, this is OnePlus's newest phone. Uh, it's their new flagship phone. It's got a Snapdragon 8 Gen 1. Uh, they already launched it in, in China, which was actually uh, uncharacteristic of the company because China isn't a very strong market for the company. Mm-hmm. But um, since Oppo, the parent company, has been integrating OnePlus more deeply into its um I guess you could call infrastructure, but really just like part of the management of the company. Mm -hmm. Um, They have made some changes to the brand that I think will streamline um, OnePlus, but may also cause it to lose some of its soul. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of those first moves was launching in China first because they've never done that before. They've mostly been a US and India based brand. So that's where a lot of their sales are today. Um, And this OnePlus 10 Pro uh, 5G is their first phone or their, their first launch of this phone in Europe and North America, which launched at MWC, kind of soft launched at MWC yeah. um, because they talked about it. You could hold it in your hand and, and, and it was already kind of launched in China, right? But it wasn't running their version of their uh, color OS. Yeah. Um, so they launched this in the US and Europe. Um, but the interesting thing is it's a T-Mobile exclusive. So... Um, there's a T-Mobile locked version of this, and then there's a unlocked version that you can buy and take anywhere. But you can't necessarily take it anywhere because one, it's not certified on Verizon yet, but they are in the process of certifying it for Verizon. Mm-hmm. Um, it does not have millimeter waves, so it will be a mid-band, low-band only device. Yeah, and um, it is not going to work on AT&T. They're not even trying to get AT&T certification, and apparently, right now, if you put a SIM in it, which I haven't tried. Um, but yeah. I do have an AT&T SIM here. Uh, if you put an AT&T SIM in here, it just doesn't even do 5G. It just kicks you to 4G. So um, they've made a very conscious decision. Um, and, you know, these carrier certifications do cost money. Um, yeah. And when you're a smaller player like OnePlus, uh, you know, it might not make sense. And they probably looked at their sales on AT&T versus Verizon and T-Mobile and realized it's probably not worth it for them. So yeah, I think, you know, it's a little weird, but... Uh, it's not a huge surprise. And um, yeah, I'm excited to test this phone out. It's actually one of many phones that I'm testing right now. I've also got the Oppo uh, Find X5 Pro and somewhere in my pocket, I also am testing the uh, um, Samsung Galaxy S22 Ultra, which I have been using more uh, as my primary device, but I'm also carrying all three. So I'll keep you guys posted on my thoughts on those phones for possibly a future podcast. You get all of the cool toys, my friend, let me tell you. You know, I thought it was interesting. You, you and I were both at Marvel World Congress and we had our wrap-up podcast a few weeks ago talking about some of our insights there. And I, I found it interesting, you know, Oppo, they had the huge booth, right? But OnePlus was just like this little showcase within the, the bigger, you know, sort of Oppo booth. And I find it interesting that, you know, Oppo didn't want to promote OnePlus, you know, on a grander scale. And actually, um, I know the person that's uh, running the ARPR team there, someone that used to work for Huawei, 
um, that we both know very well. And he, he showed me the phone and it, it was a beautiful phone. They're, they're using very high-end optics. I think it's Hasselblad, right? Yep. Um, a lot of Hasselblad branding everywhere on the box, on the packaging. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you can necessarily see it because we're using a webcam here, but uh, there's some Hasselblad branding on the phone too. Yeah, I know you're a you're a, a photo photo geek, and uh, but I do know that that's a very impressive brand. I think you know from an optics perspective and that sort of thing. So they've really picked a premium, you know, optic brand to really, in my mind, sort of accentuate the um, you know kind of the premium features of the phone. So yeah, what you know, I think on a future podcast we'd love to get sort of you know your your take on these phones as you're you know putting them through the paces and all that good stuff, but. Let's move to my second topic this week. And the GSMA issued a report on mobile payment platforms. And this is a pretty uh, interesting statistic. So the report basically stated that over $1 trillion in revenue transacted over mobile devices. And that's a 30% increase over the year prior. And I find that really compelling my initial assumption, you know, I use Zelly, I use other, you know, Venmo and these types of payment systems, but certainly in other parts of the world where you don't have the same infrastructure, where you don't have broadband penetration as prevalent as, you know, you do in the U.S. and other parts of the world, certainly, you know, your phone functions as your PC, it functions, functions as your bank and that sort of thing, but it gets me thinking, given the transaction volume there, what can 5G do to unlock additional capabilities and value add sort of in the fintech world? First thing that comes to my mind is obviously 5G inherently can support a broader and a greater number of devices over 3G and 4G. So I find that pretty compelling, but you're really the mobile expert in the firm and would love to get your input on that. Yeah, well, I think my first thought is, I guarantee you 80% of that 1 trillion comes from China. Okay. Um, because um, WeChat Pay is like the primary f- form of payment in China. Mm-hmm. So that already probably accounts for the majority of it because if you look at the rest of the world, um, nowhere, nowhere in the world is remotely as capable uh, when it comes to mobile payments as China. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're all, we're all kind of living in their shadow in that sense. Sure. Um, <clears throat> but in addition to that, uh, there's going to be a lot more capabilities being built into phones today that will enable mobile payments to be more seamless and more secure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's going to be a big driver of um, how 5G can take advantage of that. Because if you have really ironclad security on the device side and you're using 5G um, for the transport layer of, of those transactions, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's inherently much more secure than using um maybe a payment terminal um, or a, uh, um, an alternative Wi-Fi based solution. Uh, I, think, I think what will eventually happen is we will have a, a, a um, payment slice in, in a 5G network where mm-hmm. um, it is very low bit rate, but, and it's maybe not even that low latency, but it is ironclad in terms of reliability. Right. And, um, when you think about like what, you know, my first thought of how 5G can improve payments is go to a concert or any kind of sporting venue and see how much slower transaction occurs there than yeah. it does, um, you know, anywhere else, the same transaction. 
you know, I know, I think it was Solona um, was one of the companies that was helping to improve payments for private networks uh, and stadiums. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that's, that's, I think that's the beginning of it. Um, but I think long-term 5G will be a big opportunity for private networks, for payments and no more, you know, uh, sorry, my terminal, we just got to wait for it to finish clocking. So I think that's really going to be the lowest hanging fruit, but I'm yeah. sure there will be tons of other opportunities once that base is established. You brought up two really interesting points. One, the whole network slice. And I agree with you, guaranteeing quality of service for connectivity, right? There's not going to necessarily be any sort of latency requirements in my mind, but that's mission critical. The other thing you touched on was security. And the 5G new radio standard inherently has better security built in than LTE 4G. So great observations, my friend. But let's move to your second topic this week. And you want to talk about Qualcomm. Yes, so Qualcomm, uh, they sent out a, uh, I guess you could call it a press release. Um, and it was kind of in partnership with ZTE and Advanced Info Service, which is a Thai carrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were able to um, claim that they have the world's first 5G NR DC um, in a commercial network uh, running on. 2.6 gigahertz and 26 gigahertz. So they're able to get mid-band and millimeter band in simultaneous connectivity. Um, I think what they were, um, they were able to achieve 8.5 gigabits per second downlink and 2.1 gigabits per second uplink, which was for a single user device, uh, mm-hmm. which was obviously based on Snapdragon X65 um, which is Qualcomm's, what well, was Qualcomm's latest until MWC. Um, and they were using ZTE millimeter wave infrastructure. Um, the NRDC was implemented with one 100 megahertz, 2.6 gigahertz carrier and four 200 megahertz carriers and 26 gigahertz. Um, and yeah, it, you know, it took advantage of um, all the capabilities that that NR comes with. And I don't see any claims around latency specifically, Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like this is more of a, um, look look what we can do. Um, But it's really talking about, you know, expanding the role of millimeter wave um, because the reality is I I think uh, a lot of people were misled by certain, some carriers specifically in the US about the, the, the applicability of millimeter wave, mm-hmm. um, which I think has soured a lot of people in general towards 5G. But yeah. I think millimeter wave is kind of like a, uh, a really good shot in the arm for 5G in places where it needs that extra capacity to alleviate you know, congestion. Right. Um, I think you know, there are going to be a lot of places where millimeter wave absolutely makes sense. Um, I think you know, cities like New York and Chicago um, even parts of LA, you know, get near the downtown area are probably going to really take advantage of that. Sure. Um, but I just, and, and, you know, stadiums and, 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 and concert venues, but I just think that there are so many great applications from millimeter wave and they're kind of being ignored because of the overselling of the technology. Right. But ultimately I think long-term, let's say in five or 10 years, I think millimeter wave is going to be everywhere in every market. And I think it will ultimately be 
a question of applying it where it's needed rather than trying to just blanket an entire area with it. Yeah. Um, but if you look at what what's possible today, I just I'm actually genuinely shocked that we don't have millimeter wave in every concert venue, considering that most of them are closed for almost a year. Right. Yeah, you make a very good point. It's all about density. So where areas that you have high population densities, I think that's where it's gonna make the most sense, right? From a congestion standpoint. And then those are also environments where you can more easily add small cells, repeaters and that sort of thing to amplify the propagation. That's been the big knock, obviously. It's, you know, it's shorter distance and propagation, but the performance is tremendous. So, and I agree with you, I think, you know, flash forward 10 years from now, we will, we will see millimeter wave deployed in all the major metro areas. So, yeah, so it's interesting. And, you know, there are lots of companies that are working to improve the propagation millimeter wave like Qualcomm. And we've talked about that on prior podcasts. So we will move on to my third and final topic with that. And I want to talk about Vodafone. So they've launched a V2X or a vehicle to everything safety system in the UK. And it's part of something that's called the Safer Transport for Europe platform or STEP. And so they're working with Nokia to deploy this. And my thought process is, is this sort of laying the foundation for getting to the 5G poster child use case of supporting autonomous driving? We see Tesla, they're out in front, you own a Tesla. You know, they're working on the autonomous, you know, piloting of those vehicles but you need the, the telemetry in the road to make it safe, right? And so from my perspective, I think this is a, st a step forward in the right direction. And Vodafone is actually claiming that it's the UK's first V2X road safety system deployment. So any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think um, Vodafone is obviously a, a good company to start with. Um, and they have, I think, a lot of technological advantages over their competitors. I think they made it very clear that they're a leader in almost every um, evolving technology, including V2X. Right. Um, I think the one thing to consider here is that um, the UK is a is not necessarily um, as big of a market as the US when it comes to automotive, but I think there's still tons of people who drive cars in the UK. Yeah. And um, they may not have you know as many automotive manufacturers as like say Germany. But um, there is still an automotive industry there. So I think there is some opportunity for, um, you know, understanding how V2X works um, and, and making it, you know, easier for uh, car manufacturers to deploy uh, and test. But, um, you know, I still think it's still fairly early just because mm -hmm. so much um, that we've seen on the autonomous driving side is still pretty far away from being yeah. full autonomy. So um, it's, you know, you gotta lay the groundwork somehow. You do, this is a start. And certainly to get that rich telemetry, you need IOT sensors and roadways and on stop signs and traffic lights and that sort of thing. That infrastructure will just take time to build out. But starting with the infrastructure layer is a, is a good sort of first step. And, in my mind so um but it'll be yeah and the, and the way the you know the, the the british highway system is set up there's all of the m highways and i think the m highways will be the ones that are um they're like the main highways and i think those will be the ones that will determine 
those will probably have all of those capabilities, yeah. especially since that's where all the you know vehicle volume is, and all the side roads will probably not be autonomous for quite some time. Yeah. Um, or maybe they'll just have limited autonomy. And honestly, they probably don't even need that much because those kinds of scenarios are probably you know you can your sight lines are probably a lot better. Um, there's yeah. less vehicles to deal with, but there's also things like cows and wildlife that can prop up that maybe won't happen as much on the highway. So. Right. You know, right. I, there's so many factors when it comes to autonomous driving. It's kind of shocking. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's going to vary by, you know, country and that sort of thing. I've spent a lot of time in London, not driving in taxi cabs. And I tend to agree with you. It's a very, very old city. And, you know, driving just to Heathrow and winding through the city is, is, is quite difficult. So I think you make a very good point that it would make most sense to start focusing on like those M highways. I wasn't actually familiar with that topic. It's interesting, but some of the demos that I've seen, like, you know, the, the truck platooning and that sort of thing where you can automate that. I think that could, that could be huge, you know, in a place like London that is like so congested. So it's, it's, it's interesting stuff, but let's move to your third and final topic. And you want to talk about T-Mobile and they're celebrating today or this week a milestone, right? Yeah. So it is actually today. Um, Mike Siebert actually published a blog uh, kind of commemorating the two years of the, the merger. Um, and also, you said, you know, good point, his, him running the company uh, as, as John Legere stepped down mm -hmm. um, as this merger was completed. And, um, you know, if you look at where T-Mobile was two years ago and where they are today, uh, it's almost like two different companies. Yeah. Um, obviously there's still a lot of ethos from the company that has retained. And, you know, I think the, the leadership um, has gotten stronger with this merger. Um, but, you know, their, their, their 600 megahertz um, network covers 310 million Americans, mm -hmm. uh, which is 1.8 million square miles, which I think no one's going to be able to compete with in terms of 5G coverage probably for another five years, if not longer, just because of the, 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 the nature of 600 megahertz. Right. Um, and their ultra capacity now covers 210 million people. Um, and they, they plan to reach 260 million by the end of this year and 300 million next year. Um, so they're, they're clearly on a path to full saturation of both those networks. Um, and you know they're going to continue bringing more more spectrum online as they free it up. Um, and you know there's a 2.5 gigahertz auction coming soon mm -hmm. um, in July, which will also beef up their 2.5 gigahertz holdings um, and kind of fill in some of the holes that they have in cover in, in their um, regional coverage today. And yeah, you know they have a new plan, the Magenta Max plan, which is kind of an all all included plan, um, which is the only truly unlimited plan. Um, I have it and you can, you could run up 200 gigs a month if you wanted to. Wow. No, no, no throttle, huh? Zero throttling. So wow. um, I think they've really created some interesting opportunities. They're obviously working very aggressively on um, offering home broadband through their mid-band coverage. But I think the real big story is obviously the um, the fact that their 2.5 gigahertz network is built on this merger and 
Um, if you look at what they've been able to achieve and you look at the speeds and the coverage, you know, Verizon is trying to, to um, catch up with them. And I've seen some articles where it shows, you know, Verizon got a bump from their C-band network, but like T-Mobile's up here and Verizon just went a little higher than AT&T. They're both, they're still a huge Delta. And honestly, I don't see Verizon uh, narrowing that Delta very much um, over the next couple of years because T-Mobile is only going to continue to improve coverage and speeds right. um, in a way that I think will, um, you know, we'll probably see these things level out in the next two to three years. But, you know, I think even with Verizon's ambitious plans, uh, we'll probably still see a pretty wide gap because it's really, it's really hard to deploy mid-band, especially at 3.7. Yeah, it requires densification. I agree with you. I believe AT&T will close the gap sooner than Verizon, definitely. They've got other spectrum assets like 110 that they can lean into. But, you know, uh, the only thing I'll add to the T-Mobile uh, news is uh, I loved this week the, uh, the announcement of the new magenta color. And it was so funny. Neville Ray was, you know, on, on Twitter. And so many people didn't get the joke. They're, well, <laughs> it was just it was classic marketing. What's that? It's an April Fool's joke. It's a total April Fool's joke, and people did and like people were fooled. It was so funny, man. <laughs> yeah, I have the, uh, did you did you get the new magenta hoodie? I did. They, did they send you one? They didn't send yeah, me one. Yeah, but it's I not my size. So my I haven't I haven't been to my UPS store. It may be waiting for me. So <laughs> yeah, you should check. Your <laughs> Maybe inbox. I'll have a surprise. Yeah, when I get there, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, I, I love how clever they are on the marketing. Now, I will preface one, one more point. The big opportunity, T-Mobile is leading in 5G deployment. There's no doubt about that. The biggest challenge in my mind that T-Mobile is faced with is catching up to Verizon and AT&T from an enterprise services perspective. They started they started off very well. We've talked about their, their TIOT announcement. That's a great start. But there's certainly a lot of other things from an enterprise services uh, standpoint that Verizon and AT&T just have so much more depth. And so that's what I'm looking forward to hearing more from T-Mobile on is just how they're going to build out their enterprise service offering. Because from my perspective, the real power of 5G is going to lie in enterprise applications and the ability for 5G to really accelerate digital transformation. But that's yeah. sense, but. And I was going to say, I think the, the big 5G forward announcement um, is, a, a, is a big step forward for them to try and make those changes happen. I agree. Glad you mentioned that. Well, another great podcast, my friend. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this, this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insight on a future 5G, pop, future, future 5G topic for another podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Whale Town Tech and I'm at Anshal Sog. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week.